A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Ancestry.com.au. You've seen the faded sepia photograph, but how tall was your great-grandfather? How much did he weigh? What colour were his eyes? And did he really have a mermaid tattoo? These are the sort of details that can turn a family tree into a colourful and compelling personal history. And they're the sort of details you can sometimes discover in military and or police records at Ancestry.com.au. I use Ancestry constantly to research and write this podcast, and it could help you piece your past together too. For more information, go to Ancestry.com.au because there could be more to your story. Forgotten Australia is written and produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to Aboriginal elders, past and present. It's the summer afternoon of Thursday the 13th of February 1879 and Sydney's best people are gathered in the city's most idyllic place to lay the foundations for the future glory of not only New South Wales but for all of Australia. On these sunny acres of the inner domain where the verdant botanic gardens frame the panorama of the harbour, the grandest of grand buildings will soon rise. It's to be the venue for Sydney's International Exhibition, the first such spectacle to be held in Australia. Incredible to think that this immense undertaking was conceived just two months ago. Even more remarkable is that work has been underway for these past six weeks, and a considerable portion of the vast floor has been laid down. That means today's dignitaries have a pleasant place in which to promenade. For these VIPs, there's plenty to see. Everywhere around them are staggering stacks of materials. Hundreds of thousands of bricks and hundreds of thousands of feet of Oregon timber. Then, of course, there's acres and acres of galvanised iron sheeting. 400 men are hard at work. They're sawing and hammering and laying more floor and erecting brick foundations. All of this construction is very noisy, but no one seems to mind too much. Placards that are dotted around the site actually remind visitors they should be marvelling at the progress that's so speedy as to be almost magical. When the exhibition building is complete, it will lay claim to be the most graceful and stupendous structure in the whole of the Southern Hemisphere. With its cathedral-style cruciform design, the building is to be the length of two and a half rugby fields north to south and one and a half fields east to west. It's to have two floors of galleries and four grand entrance towers, taller than most of Sydney's other buildings. But the crowning feature, the Great Dome, will be the city's tallest structure, and it'll scrape the sky at a majestic 210 feet. Surrounded by beautiful gardens, the palace-like exhibition building will, when complete, be officially renamed the Garden Palace. But this fairy tale visage remains in the near future. Right now, it's time to lay the foundation stone. Not long after 3 pm, the Honourable Lady Robinson and her small party arrive in a small carriage at the Macquarie Street entrance to the site. 
Lady Robinson is met by her husband, the Governor of New South Wales, Sir Hercules Robinson, who's just arrived on foot with his own entourage. His Excellency and his Lady are welcomed by the Premier and Colonial Secretary, Sir Henry Parks. Everyone who's anyone in government and colonial administration is also on hand. Also in attendance are the two men with physical charge of the project, colonial architect James Barnett, who designed the Garden Palace, and John Young, the contractor and builder, realising his vision. Sir Henry Parks escorts Lady Robinson to the Foundation Stone and he presents her with the tools for today's ceremony. The mallet is made of mild wood. It's highly polished and it glitters with gold ornamentation. The trowel is made of gold plate, its handle of ivory and gold. Lady Robinson uses these attractive tools in the prescribed ceremonial fashion and she makes the customary declaration that the foundation stone is well and truly laid. Three cheers are raised for Lady Robinson. Then three more cheers are given for Queen Victoria. When the garden palace is complete, it's her majestic personage, recreated in a bronze statue that will stand in pride of place directly beneath the Great Dome. In his official speech, Governor Robinson envisages the Garden Palace as more than brick and timber and iron, and the International Exhibition as more than a showcase for Australia's ways and wares. This is a chance for Australia, as one, to capture the limelight as more than a collection of colonies. As the motto of the exhibition says, Autoresens quam piranita, this Latin translating to newly risen, how brightly you shine. In this vein, Governor Robinson tells the crowd, quote, I hope that this may prove a happy augury for the future, that it may serve to show the real identity of all Australian interests and hasten the day when the Australian provinces will occupy a proud position before the world as a united federal dominion. Three cheers are given for His Excellency and the ceremony ends. Most then take the opportunity to knock back a champagne or two, an abundance of bottles on ice having been laid out on tables. Yet another bottle that's played a part in this ceremony is already being forgotten. Blown from clear glass, stopped with a fat circular cork and sealed with red wax, its roundness has perhaps a capacity of half a gallon. But it doesn't contain bubbly. Instead, the bottle contains tightly rolled paper bundles. There's a copy of the New South Wales Government Gazette and recent copies of newspapers, including the Town and Country Journal, the Sydney Morning Herald and the Evening News. There's also a Sydney Mail lithograph view of what the Garden Palace is to look like and a parchment that describes what's just happened today the laying of the stone by Lady Robinson, and the names and titles and positions of all those present. Now out of sight, buried beneath the foundation stone, this bottle is a time capsule. It's a message for the future. If anyone gives it any thought at all, they might envisage a far-off world excavating the bottle. They might even imagine that it's supervised by a Prime Minister of a Federated Australia, a dream so dearly held by Sir Henry Parks, and that this Australia might exist in a fantastical world, as Mr Jules Verne describes, where men not only clatter through Sydney streets inside mechanical carriages, but also soar over the city itself in flying machines. 
What no one can imagine is this. It'll only be a few short years before this time capsule is retrieved. And when it is, it'll be one of the few relics to have survived the fiery holocaust that's to raise the most magnificent structure ever raised in colonial Sydney. I'm Michael Adams, and this is Forgotten Australia. Sydney's two architectural and engineering triumphs, the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House, are both famously the result of much blood, sweat and tears across decades of ideation, design, planning and construction. But the Garden Palace was nothing like that. As the Sydney Morning Herald would say, it was, quote, erected in a remarkably short space of time, reminding one of the fabled Palace of Aladdin in the Arabian Nights. This was no exaggeration. In mid-1877, the New South Wales Agricultural Society proposed that Sydney hold an international exhibition. Such expos, the next big one was to be in Paris, were all the rage as opportunities for great powers to show off their national identities, their artistic, cultural, agricultural, manufacturing, scientific and technological achievements, while also welcoming the very same from other countries and colonies all across the globe. By February 1878, it was resolved. Sydney would stage an international exhibition the following year. But as interest grew and the deadline raced ever closer, the Agricultural Society realised it had bitten off far more than it could chew. They just didn't have the money to pay for it, and their agricultural hall was far too small. The New South Wales government was in quite the predicament. The exhibition had been announced and planning was far advanced. To cancel now would risk international shame. So the government stepped up to supply funding, including the massive expenditure that would be needed for a new venue. But Sydney's international exhibition building would have to be raised in nine months. It needed to be ready to receive exhibitors, displays and visitors in September 1879. On Tuesday the 17th of December 1878, the New South Wales government instructed its colonial architect, James Barnett, to prepare plans. James Barnett's work is all over Sydney. The GPO, the Australian Museum, the Lands Department and the Chief Secretary's building, to name just a few. By the time he got this brief, he'd been in his position for 15 years. Barnett was to be inspired by the Crystal Palace in London, which had hosted the international exhibition there in 1851. He had to design a spectacular building that would take full advantage of the prime real estate of the inner domain. James Barnett worked at lightning speed and he submitted his design for approval to the government just three days later, the 20th of December. Building contractor John Young was the man to realise James Barnett's vision. He'd worked on London's Crystal Palace, and he'd also worked in Sydney on a smaller exhibition building in Prince Alfred Park that was used for intercolonial shows. By the first week of January 1879, not only had the plans been approved, but men were marking out the ground. To finish in time though, a massive army of labourers would have to be able to work around the clock. This was easier said than done in the days before electrical lighting. 
While Sydney had seen demonstrations of electricity, the city was still lit by gas. But Australia was now in telegraphic communication with London. So John Young ordered Arclight's and electrical plant to be sent ASAP. When they arrived in March, experiments were made and soon Sydney saw its first ever use of electrical light. As the Australian Town and Country Journal explained, quote, The works were lit up by a soft, steady light, which permitted 300 men to work at the erection of heavy pillars and girders at a speed that greatly expedited the day work. Notwithstanding, there were four shifts at night. Through the end of summer and all of winter, in the midday sunlight and by midnight electric light, men swarmed over the site and the scaffolding of the structure. The ribs of the dome were a mighty vision from all over Sydney, particularly the harbour. At the peak of the project, 3,000 men were employed. They used 4.5 million feet of timber, 2.5 million bricks and 243 tonnes of corrugated galvanised iron. The public watched and photographers made wonderful pictures. The Garden Palace was cruciform, a cathedral-style design. The nave was 800 feet long, that's almost 250 metres from north to south. The transept was 500 feet in length, a little over 150 metres, running east to west. The nave and transept were both 50 feet wide and stood 60 feet high. Atop their intersection rose a vaulted dome 100 feet in diameter. 90 feet up, at the apex, there was an eye of stained glass 20 feet across. Rising above that was a lantern and finial for a final height of 210 feet. At each point of the compass, the nave and transept terminated in a grand entrance tower. Each of these four towers was 50 feet square, and each ascended 120 to 150 feet depending on the fall of the ground. There were 10 smaller towers, each 25 feet square, ranging from 75 to 100 feet tall. Inside the main Garden Palace buildings was floor space of 8.5 acres. There were two galleries flooded with natural light from lofty windows. There was also a vast basement. This included a refreshment room with numerous restaurants and cafes. It was spacious beyond compare at 100 feet square. Directly below the ground floor intersection of the nave and transept, this refreshment room was centred on a fountain and the fountain rose through a balustrade aperture to the ground floor above. Surmounted on the fountain, encircled by a railing for visitors, was that bronze statue of Queen Victoria, majestic beneath the centre of the dome. Access to the Garden Palace was via numerous doors and stairways, inside and out, up and down the towers. You could also get to the Garden Palace in novel fashion. Four steam trams, the first ever in Sydney were imported for the exhibition. Tracks were laid from Redfern Railway Station, which was then Sydney's major terminus, along Elizabeth Street to Hunter Street. Another transportation novelty was offered inside the north entrance tower in Sydney's first hydraulic lift. This elevator took visitors to a viewing area offering a panorama that favourably compared with being in a tethered balloon basket. The Garden Palace had brick foundation walls, but was otherwise constructed from various timbers, and its walls and roofs and dome were covered with corrugated galvanised iron. 
Given it was hoped the exhibition was to attract tens of thousands of visitors on any given day for about half a year, safety was a serious concern. 100 hand-picked police under the command of an inspector, along with detectives from London and from other colonies, were to be on guard so, as the Town & Country Journal reported, evildoers in our midst will be kept well in check. But evildoers weren't the only threat, or even the major threat. That was fire. But this was also to be taken care of. As the Town & Country Journal reported, the police were to be, quote, specially careful to prevent persons from smoking or lighting matches in or near the building and to prepare themselves to render prompt and efficient assistance to the fire brigade officers in the event of any alarm or fire. There were also to be masses of firemen on site. These brigades would be constantly on duty and have at their disposal ample means of suppressing any fire, which took the form of dozens of water pipes and hoses throughout the building. The Garden Palace was beautiful, but it was also to be temporary. Once the international exhibition was complete, it was to be demolished and its materials recycled wherever possible. By the start of spring 1879, the Garden Palace was nearing completion beneath its scaffolding, like a butterfly emerging from a cocoon to take its place as the pride of Sydney. While photographers could only render it in sepia, the Garden Palace was vivid against the green of the gardens and the deep blue of the harbour sky. Its decorations were white, its corrugated roofs tinted light blue, the woodwork was buff and pale green, heightened with red in the nave and transept, while the ornamental capitals of the columns were accented with gold. Dozens of flags flew from its towers to add yet more colour. Inside, High above the bronze statue of Queen Victoria, the stained glass eye was set in the dome's blue concavity, which was dotted with gold stars in contrast to its red ribbing. In February 1879, when the foundation stone was laid, the cost of the Garden Palace was estimated at £50,000. But over the seven months that followed, it had cost the colony nearly four times that amount. But it wasn't all incompetency and inefficiency. It was also partly because there was so much demand for space that other buildings and annexes were erected in the domain nearby, including an art gallery, agricultural hall and machinery halls. Just a week or so out from opening day, scheduled for the 17th of September, heavy wet weather set in over Sydney and it didn't let up. Nearly a foot of rain doused the city and some exhibits were under threat of destruction. Conditions were so bad, it was suggested the opening be delayed until the start of October. But authorities wouldn't have it. Someone up there seemed to be looking out for Sydney's international exhibition, because as the opening day approached, the heavens cleared. As the Sydney Morning Herald noted, the genial sun shone forth with unusual luster, and there was general rejoicing at the splendours displayed both inside and outside the noble structure. Nine months to the day after colonial architect James Barnett was asked to start his design, the Garden Palace was born unto the public in an official opening ceremony. The cost up to this point? £192,000. By now, Governor Robinson had been succeeded by Governor Lord Augustus Loftus, so he did the honours. 
In the spirit of unity, the governors of Victoria, Tasmania and South Australia were in attendance. So were the members of the New South Wales government, many naval and military officers and foreign consuls. Henry Kendall, Australia's finest poet, had won £100 in a Sydney Morning Herald competition to compose an ode to the Garden Palace and to the International Exhibition. His ode was set to music and it was sung at the opening. It started, Songs of morning, with your breath, sing the darkness now to death. Radiant river, beaming bay, fair as summer, shine today. Flying torrent, falling slope, wear a face as bright as hope. Wind and woodland, hill and sea, lift your voices, sing for glee. Greet the guests, your fame has won, put your brightest garments on. Lo, they come, the lords unknown, sons of peace from every zone. See above our waves unfurled, all the flags of all the world. North and south and west and east, gather in to grace our feast. Shining nations, let them see how like England we can be. Mighty nations, let them view sons of generous sires in you. Some 24,000 members of the public turned out for the opening. By chance, the Sydney Morning Herald that day contained an article about Sydney's population, so it gives us an idea of what proportion that number represented. The Herald explained that, according to the last census, which admittedly had been done back in 1871, 135,000 white people lived in the city and its suburbs. That number would have grown by 1879, but we can't say by how much, for reasons that will become clear. But what is reasonable to say is that about one in six people who lived in Sydney saw the opening ceremony that day and became the Garden Palace's first wide-eyed visitors. They saw the best the Australian colonies could showcase, and the best from 34 nations and colonies around the world. Most people had never travelled beyond Australia's shores, but now they could behold marvels from the United States and Canada, Japan and India, British Malaya and Singapore, Germany, France, Italy and Austria, among others. Of course, home, Great Britain, was also robustly represented. All up, there were 9,345 exhibitors and 14,000 exhibits. The Garden Palace and its many splendours were celebrated in a musical composition called the Australian Exhibition Shotish. The Sydney Morning Herald said it was very pretty and easy to dance to. You can judge for yourself because this is what it sounded like. dancing or simply walking, attendance to the exhibition was strong, but nails were still being bitten as to whether it would be a financial success. Even if it wasn't, that wasn't the true measure of the event. In a patriotic fervour, the Illustrated Sydney News on the 4th of October 1879 said that even if the outlay wasn't recouped, not a farthing would be lost because the exhibition would encourage the, quote, considerable influx of small capitalists, a class of men much needed in this country. This alone would be an enormous gain for Australia. But that was only the start. 
The paper said that England and other nations of the old world would now for the first time take note of Australia, thanks to reports of newspaper men circulating around the globe. Quote, Is not this sufficient to stir the heart pulses of the Australian? Well may we shout, Advance Australia, for we are progressing at a rate which even the most go-ahead Yankee must envy. The international exhibition ran for 185 days and closed on the 20th of April 1880. 1,117,536 people had attended. An average of 4,000 people per day had used the trams, and they provided a healthy financial return on their outlay. The actual exhibition? Not so much. Revenue from admissions and from sales totaled £50,000. Building and hosting expenses had run to £314,000. The shortfall was enormous, but it was going to be offset. That was because the buildings, which were valued at £160,000, were not going to be dismantled after all. Sir Henry Park said that Sydney was to keep the Garden Palace for the recreation of the people. And the same went for the tram. In April 1880, the government authorised construction of more city and suburban tramways, laying the basis for what would become a grand network that would eventually run not on steam, but on electricity. The Garden Palace was used for concerts, oratorios, balls, public meetings and flower shows. People continued to enjoy its agreeable climate and the pleasures of promenading its wide, light and airy galleries amid the dozens of wonderful statues bought by the government. But the Garden Palace's vast spaces were home to more than the government's artworks. As New South Wales expanded ever more rapidly, so did its administrative needs. Government departments required more offices and more storage sites. To cope, some had resorted to renting city houses and storing records in ordinary and relatively insecure rooms. Now the Garden Palace could absorb much of this overflow. The Census, Mining, Railway Survey, Harbour and Rivers Departments all set up offices, and the government spent thousands of pounds on these accommodations. The complex had also become a site for culture. The Art Gallery Annex was, from September 1880, the official Art Gallery of New South Wales. And from that year, in the Garden Palace proper, the Art Society of New South Wales held its annual exhibition. Meanwhile, other collections were being stored, built and readied for the public. The Technological, Industrial and Sanitary Museum of New South Wales was to showcase the raw materials and science of production along with the latest in health and hygiene and other items of educational value and general public interest. So there'd be animal and vegetable specimens and products to show methods of extraction, preparation and manufacture for clothing, textiles and pharmaceutical purposes. There'd also be historical furniture, agricultural tools and mining and engineering machinery. The museum was to house ethnological specimens too, including 500 or more Indigenous Australian artefacts. The Department of Mines was also working on a very extensive museum of geological specimens. This comprised fossils, minerals and rocks collected by the Mining Department, as well as the collection of our pioneering geologist, Reverend William Clark, which included his priceless books, maps and manuscripts. 
As the third week of September 1882 got underway, there was much activity inside the Garden Palace. Amid their reams and reams of paper returns, the census officials were, after much controversial delay, finalising their findings gleaned from analysis of April 1881's household survey of all the colony's people. Elsewhere, the finishing touches were being put on both the Technological Museum and the Mining Museum. The respective curators were down to the last labels and last display cases. The public would be seeing them in a matter of months. And with the Art Society of New South Wales's third annual exhibition to have its first viewing at the end of September, 300 works had been judged and hung on the walls. First prize, 20 guineas, had gone to Arthur Collingridge for his painting Her Majesty's Mail Stuck Up and this highway robbery scene was sure to draw a crowd. With its combination of public pleasures, commercial enterprises, and government purposes, the Garden Palace had become what we'd call a mixed-use complex. A workplace for many, and an attraction for many more. Yet, after the sun set, this immense structure was only seen, from the inside at least, by one set of eyes. While the exhibition had merited 100 police and brigades of firemen, now the Garden Palace was secured by a solitary night watchman. One man to safeguard a floor space of eight and a half acres. Eight and a half dark acres that were packed with artistic, scientific, technological and geological treasures. Packed with original documents vital to the colony's administration expansion and understanding of itself. What could possibly go wrong? My new book, The Murder Squad, is out now. And if I say so myself, it'll make a cracking Father's Day gift. What's it about? Well, the tagline kind of nails it. How Australia's toughest cops hunted the monsters of the Great Depression. The Murder Squad is filled with incredible true crime, all set against one of the most tumultuous periods in our history when communists and fascists were fighting on the streets in the shadow of the newly risen Harbour Bridge. The Murder Squad also comes with an eye-popping picture section that showcases just how sensational the newspapers were in reporting what was dubbed the Murder Wave. The Murder Squad is available now wherever books are sold, and there's a Booktopia link in the show notes that'll get you 33% off and have the book delivered to you by Father's Day. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Around sunset on Thursday, the 21st of September, 1882, Frederick Cooper Kirchin arrived for work. Work as the night watchman of the Garden Palace. Records at Ancestry.com.au tell us he was born in Manchester in England in April 1846, so he was 38 years old. A blacksmith by trade, he'd lately been attached to the Insurance Brigade 
This was one of the private fire brigades that would protect their clients' properties around Sydney. In July 1881, Kirchin had been responsible for a house in Marrickville that had burned down in suspicious circumstances. Someone appeared to have doused a coat in kerosene and set it alight. The property burned to the ground. To be clear, there was no blame attached to Kirchin. It had simply been one of the buildings under his watch, and he'd arrived at the scene to do what he could. Within weeks of this, though, Kirchin had a new job. He was hired by colonial architect James Barnett to be the Garden Palace's night watchman. Frederick Kirchin would start at six each evening, relieving the day watchman John McKnight. Kirchin was to ascertain who, if anyone, was still in the Garden Palace and to ensure he locked it up after they left. During his shift, Kirchin was to make regular rounds of the palace's interior, lighting his way by candle lantern to ensure that all was well. Each of these inspections would take maybe 20 minutes. At six the following morning, Kirchin would hand the garden palace back over to John McKnight. For these long shifts, Kirchin was paid £3.3 three shillings per week. The early hours of Friday the 22nd of September were like the tail end of the shifts he'd done over the past 15 months. Kirchin did his rounds, accompanied by his little dog. Kirchin received visits from two city constables who, per their orders, were to check in with him a couple of times a night to see that all was well and that he was doing his duty. The latest of these checks was at 5.30 in the morning. Kirchin and the police walked some of the ground floor hall. Kirchin by then didn't need his candle lantern because pre-dawn light was streaming in through the vast windows and high above through the eye in the dome. Kirchin and the police made small talk about the flower show that was then on in the palace. They paused by the Queen Victoria statue, made more chit-chat and then said their goodbyes. The police left via the doors that faced Macquarie Street. Five minutes later, Kirchin followed, locking the doors behind him. He walked towards the Macquarie Street palace gates. There, he met John McKnight, who'd arrived a little early for his shift. The men chatted for a few minutes, their backs to the garden palace. When Kirchin turned, he saw something was very wrong. Up there, rising from around the dome, the worst thing possible. Look, he said to McKnight, there's smoke. The two watchmen ran to the door. Kirchin unlocked it. They both gazed into an inferno. Kirchin would say, I cannot describe it. There was a great cloud of smoke and then an immense burst of fire. Flames were roaring up from the basement, through the aperture for the fountain and the statue, and exploding up into the dome. Queen Victoria was melting on a throne of fire. The supporting pillars were wreathed in flames, and the ribs and panels of the dome rippled with fire too. Already, the stained glass of the skylight was dropping like molten rain. Flames had sprung up elsewhere, as though the whole basement had somehow spontaneously combusted. The men connected a hose and got a stream of water going, but it was no use. As the Sydney Morning Herald would say, quote, only a drop to quench a furnace. If they wanted to live, they had to leave. Blinded by smoke, blistered of hand and face already, they beat a retreat from the fire and the heat. McKnight reached the telephone that was connected with the city's number two volunteer fire brigade station. He sent the alarm along the line and then ran for it. Kirchin followed him. 
and then heard a pitiful noise. His little dog, leashed and yelping, at the mercy of the Holocaust. Kirchen ran back, freed the dog, and they escaped together. Outside, the watchmen could do nothing but watch. The police constables returned, running, having seen the smoke from the city streets. It had been just 12 minutes since they'd left. The entire interior of the main hall was now a glowing mass of fire. Kirchen would say to one of the constables that he couldn't understand how it had happened so fast or what had happened. Someone, he said, must have set the blaze. Flames erupted from the northern tower first and then burst through the dome and every other part of the roof and along the parapets to catch all the towers alight. The Sydney Morning Herald reported that within a few minutes there was no part of the building that wasn't ablaze. This report, published the following day, was an excellent piece of long-form, on-the-spot reporting and it remains vivid more than 140 years later. Quote, Then came a dull roaring sound and a crackling like the discharge of firearms. An immense flame leapt into the sky, volumes of black smoke rolled up and with a crash like a peal of thunder... The mighty dome fell in. The current of air created by the fall carried up as in a whirlwind great sheets of galvanized iron and clouds of burning embers. This red-hot and blazing material fell as showers on properties in Potts Point, Woolloomooloo, Rushcutters Bay and Elizabeth Bay. One house was briefly set alight before the fire was extinguished. By now, fire brigades had arrived at the Garden Palace from all over Sydney. They had all the weapons to fight fire, yet, as the Sydney Morning Herald put it, quote, they could only stand still and gaze as utterly powerless before the great element opposed to them as children to keep back the tide of the ocean. The writer couldn't help but be in awe. Quote, the scene would have been magnificent at night time, and even in the light of day, it was grand. The flames were sometimes tempered carmine, green, yellow or blue by the burning of the galvanized roofing and the various metallic substances contained in the building. After the dome crashed, the northwestern tower was the next to fall. Then, the wooden upper portion of the tower facing Macquarie Street collapsed into its brick walls. All along Macquarie Street, from every vantage point, footpath, balcony and roof, people watched the last moments of the Garden Palace, now providing its final spectacle. People were in dressing gowns or clad in whatever had been handy when they got out of bed. A few, though, were already dressed. That was because they'd been up trying to catch a glimpse of the Great Comet, which all month had proved a spectacle. So bright it could be seen during the day though now, after its perihelion, it was visible only in the dark hours. As the flames became ever fiercer, some Macquarie Street spectators had to retreat from the heat. At 6.05am, the furnace was so intense that its heat waves cracked the windows of houses on Macquarie Street. Then the wind shifted, and the flames threatened number 1 Richmond Terrace, whose residents packed and prepared to flee. As bad as things were, this was a bigger danger. A sustained wind could blow the fire onto the city. If that happened, and buildings caught alight, there'd be no way to stop the inferno, except to use explosives to destroy properties in its path and deprive it of fuel. The shifting of the wind put the art gallery annex in danger. Firemen stood ready to defend it. But it didn't come to that. The wind died down.
After weeks of celestial spectacle, Sydney now had a new vision in the sky. The rising sun appearing as a crimson disc through fire and smoke. The Sydney Morning Herald said, quote, The scene was the most imposing, as it was the most pitiful ever seen in the colonies. By 7am, the Garden Palace had almost been entirely razed. It was now glowing rubble of red-hot metal and burning embers. Amid the heat and smoke, jagged remnants of grand entrance towers still stood as teetering, blackened brick walls. These would collapse in the coming days as they were hit by strong winds. The gardens surrounding the building had also been badly damaged, with 20,000 plants destroyed. The vision was apocalyptic. Yet not everyone was entirely displeased. In a very Sydney observation, the Herald reported, quote, By nine o'clock, all was over, and the residences in Macquarie Street had their view of the harbour restored to them. This might have been the only silver lining. Here's the Sydney Morning Herald's assessment of the interior damage. Inside the tottering walls, a confused mass of smoking ruins marks the place once occupied by the Great Hall and spacious naves. Charred beams, twisted iron, supports and numerous sheets of galvanised iron shriveled by the flames until they present the appearance of burnt paper are mixed up with bricks and broken glass and it is hard to realise that the Garden Palace could have become such an absolute wreck. Scarcely any trace of the stately dome can be seen and in the centre above which it stood the only prominent object is a portion of the fountain upon which stood the statue of Her Most Gracious Majesty the Queen. The Garden Palace loss was staggering but it was far worse than it looked. During the exhibition the protection offered by policemen and firemen meant insurance was obtainable at a reasonable premium. This had not been the case afterwards. There was no insurance. The fire meant the entire Garden Palace, £160,000 worth of building, was now a monstrous monetary loss for the government. That wasn't even the worst of it. Everything inside had been destroyed. Much of it was irreplaceable. While the art gallery annex had been saved, all the art for the upcoming exhibition was destroyed. 300 works, then valued at £6,000, though at least they were insured for half that amount. All the statues inside the palace, dozens and dozens of them, were also now rubble. Yet there had been warnings that something like this might happen to the already decrepit art gallery annex. The Sydney Morning Herald remarked, quote, The destruction of the Garden Palace only emphasises the recommendation made over and over again that the pictures, statues and ceramic ware now stored in a tinder box, the foundations of which are partially destroyed by the white ant, should be placed where they would have a better chance of preservation. Pressure was now on the colony's political leaders to erect a permanent protective art gallery. Even so, New South Wales's collection of art would, for the next 15 years, be kept in a new barn in the domain before the present art gallery was built and opened. Joseph Maiden, curator of the Technological Museum, saw that almost his entire collection had been destroyed in the Garden Palace fire. An odd exception was an elephant statue from Ceylon. 
It had been made of graphite, but not only had it survived the fire, it had also survived a five-story plunge from its position. Miracle elephant aside, the treasures of the Technological Museum were gone. Joseph Maiden would start rebuilding immediately. But what he assembled would also be stored in a shed in the domain. This tin structure shared with Sydney Hospital's morgue so that visitors had to endure the stench of dead bodies. After another temporary home, in the Agricultural Hall in the Domain, the collection would, from 1893, be housed in the purpose-built Technological Museum in Harris Street in Ultimo. The government geologist, Mr C.S. Wilkinson, was similarly mortified that the mining museum was almost completely destroyed. The collection's gems and most of its gold, worth £700 in total, were recovered from a safe. Mr. Wilkinson, too, would set about rebuilding the collection. But much, particularly the Reverend Clark's collection, was lost irretrievably. Other safes were found and opened in the rubble of the building, but their documents had turned to ash, except one safe that was fireproof. The papers inside were found to be scorched, and the glue that bound books had melted, but the documents were otherwise intact. This was the exception. The fire had consumed every scrap of paper in the Garden Palace. The occupation branch of the Lands Department had lost everything, originals and duplicates. Here's how the Herald described it, quote, The documents that were destroyed there included the entire official records of the pastoral runs of the colony, their descriptions, amended descriptions, and all the settlements by arbitration and agreement, all the plans of the work of the last 20 years, all the documents relating to transfers, which are most important legal documents, and all the correspondence relating to the branch. Some of the information could be obtained from other records held at the Treasury, but, quote, much of the information which has been lost will never again be obtained. Other document losses meant lost time. Railway survey work that had taken years to complete had all been destroyed and some of it did not exist in duplicate. Much of the work would need to be done over. That meant resurveying hundreds of miles, and this would cause long delays to line extensions in both Sydney suburbs and country regions. Of course, the flow-on effects from this were impossible to calculate in commercial losses and in personal inconveniences. More damaging yet, perhaps, was the destruction of original plans and many tracings for water infrastructure around Newcastle, Maitland and the Hunter Valley. Just the previous month, the Newcastle Morning Herald and Miners Advocate had published a long article about how desperately the district needed safe water supplies. In the wake of the Garden Palace fire, the Sydney Morning Herald optimistically said that delays would not be too great. Yet even months might have led to unnecessary sickness and death from cholera or other waterborne illnesses then prevalent in the region. Yet there was a further destruction, one that more than any other left a gaping black hole in Australia's history. The New South Wales Census had been conducted in April 1881 at the cost of something like £24,000. Since then, there'd been increasing disquiet about how long the detailed returns were taking. On the 21st of September, 1882, the work was finally done, and the results were to go to the government printer the following day. 
the returns were stored in the basement in the southeastern corner. That morning, the fire burned every atom. It wasn't just the 1881 detailed household forms that recorded names, ages, addresses, occupations and familial relationships. Original household forms from 1861 and 1871 were also incinerated, along with other records for 1846, 1851, 1861, 1871 and 1881. All that would be available from the 1881 survey were summaries that had been laid on the table of the Legislative Assembly a few weeks earlier. The newspapers said that the public would be rightfully angry about this. Towns would now never know how much they'd grown over the past decade. This was, of course, the short-term view. These records, if they'd not been stored in the Garden Palace, and if they'd survived subsequently elsewhere, would be invaluable today to historians, genealogists, writers, family researchers, and anyone else interested in Australian history. The Sydney Morning Herald commented, quote, The serious loss of public documents should convince the government of the urgent necessity for placing all records of a public nature in receptacles of sufficient strength to protect them from injury. The paper said that right then, there were still many other irreplaceable documents, including those relating to the colony's early history that were, quote, wholly unprotected and being kept in ordinary bookcases in ordinary rooms. Unless something be done to store such records as these in suitable places, we may on any day have to announce another great loss. People who gained access to the Garden Palace ruins in the immediate aftermath of the disaster, politicians, pressmen, favoured members of the public, those who could talk their way past the police, were recorded to have grabbed whatever they could. It didn't amount to much. The Sydney Morning Herald reported, quote, Naturally, those who were admitted through the gates of the enclosure immediately sought for some memento of the palace, and the most trifling article, even an ordinary nail, was appropriated with eagerness. But there was one item that had survived better than just about everything else. During demolition work, a young man named Edward Fallick, whose father had a Pitt Street ironmongering business, found the glass-bottled time capsule stuffed with papers. They were all safe and sound, unscorched, protected beneath the naturally fireproof foundation stone. Did young Mr. Fallick hand it over to the government? He did not. Mr. Fallick took it back to the family's own private museum. What had caused the Garden Palace fire? There were many rumours immediately. One, soon to be found without any basis, was that two boys had seen the first wisps of smoke rising from the southern vestibule of the Garden Palace and moments later had seen a man jump from a window and flee. There were far more fanciful tales. As the Sydney Morning Herald reported, all sorts of absurd rumours from dynamite plots to masked men and trains of gunpowder were yesterday afloat concerning its origin. Maybe something like the comet had been to blame. A Wallara man wrote that a fireball or other meteor of cometary nature may have touched the roof of the building, exploded the gas pipes and set the whole place in a blaze in a twinkling. A more prosaic theory was that the cause of the explosion was that gas had simply leaked from the mains. The problem with this explanation was that only one gas pipe had been in use, and that was by the night watchman in his little room. 
In any event, there were so many vents and windows in the basement that it wasn't possible for sufficient gas to have built up to cause such an almighty explosion. So how had the fire become so immense so quickly? The coroner's inquiry began on the 26th of September before coroner Mr. H. Scheel and a jury of 12 men. The most intense interest, of course, was in the first witness, night watchman Frederick Kirchen. What had he done? What hadn't he done? As far as the evidence allowed, he'd done everything right and nothing wrong. Kirchen had taken charge on Thursday the 21st at 5.45 or 5.50pm from day watchman John McKnight, who told him there was only a cleaner and a lands department employee still in the building. They soon left and Kirchen had locked up. Inside, Kirchen and his little dog did numerous rounds of the building, which took 15 to 20 minutes, and other than those, he said he'd spent perhaps an hour in total in his little room near the western entrance. The gas was burning only in this office. Kirchen said he'd gone outside only twice, and he'd locked the door both times behind him. This was for about 10 minutes after 9pm, and then again at around 3 or 3.30 the next morning. Quote, when making my visits of inspection, I carried a lighted candle in a lantern. It was kept alight all night, the candle being, when necessary, renewed. His last round had been about quarter to five, and this had included the basement. There was nothing amiss, no smell of gas, certainly no smoke. In those early hours, Kirchen had two visits from a pair of police on their city beat. This was Senior Constable James McVane and Senior Constable John Day. On their first visit, Kirchen had just seen them at the door to the Garden Palace. But the second time, around quarter past five, the cops came inside and remained for around 15 minutes. Kirchen told the court, quote, It was dawning day at the time and I had no light with me. He said he wasn't smoking and neither were the police. Kirchen and McVeigh had walked about three quarters the length of the ground floor past the statue and the aperture that opened to the basement refreshment room and its fountain below. There was nothing coming up from there. No smoke, no fumes, no flames. Then Kirchen saw them off, quote, I went out with the constables, my little dog being on the chain, locking the door of my room in which was kept the keys of the various officers. Kirchen was again at pains to say he had not lit a match that morning, nor had he smoked. He continued, I left the building not intending to return, and I met McKnight at the gate. This did sound a little bit odd. It made it seem as though he'd intended to leave his dog behind. In any event, Kirchen was outside at 5.35am. He and McKnight spoke for a few minutes, and then they saw the smoke. They rushed back, and Kirchen unlocked the door. Quote, On opening it, we saw a mass of smoke and flames about the statue of the Queen. The smoke and flames were coming through the aperture around the pedestal and ascending to the dome. There was one mass of smoke and flames, the aperture being the only place we saw it issuing from. From what he said, the fire had begun directly below in the basement, and it was instantly massive. He said there had been no rubbish heap down there, nor had he smelled anything that might have been an accelerant. The gas pipes below had long since been disconnected. Kirchen sobbed giving testimony. He said, I would have sacrificed my life to stop the fire. I thought more of that building than my own home. 
The coroner's inquest would extend across many days. Day watchman John McKnight corroborated Kirchin's account as much as he could. In his testimony, he also considered that the fire had started near the basement fountain and that the aperture above it had acted as a flue. The volume of fire, he said, was such that if it had been burning in ordinary fashion, it would have had to have been doing so for about an hour to become so immense. McKnight said that no one could have got to the spot at the fountain undetected to light a fire. He believed it was possible a fuse could have been used in conjunction with explosive or an accelerant. Senior Constables McVeigh and Day testified at length, and they corroborated what the night and day watchman had already said. The police told the court that doing their rounds, they'd never found Fred Kirchin not doing his duty, nor had they ever seen him smoking inside the building. They'd only once seen him smoking on the outside. In fact, Constable Day said Kirchin had once told him to put out his cigarette. Both policemen testified that at around quarter past five, there'd been nothing amiss inside the Garden Palace. Other witnesses testified to seeing the smoke and blaze from various vantage points around the city, creating a chronology that mostly matched what the watchmen and the police had said. However, some witnesses insisted that the smoke and flame had emerged from the North Tower before the Dome. This created the idea that the blaze had started simultaneously in at least two parts of the building. Workers from government departments testified about what had and hadn't been stored in the basement and other parts of the palace. The short story was there had been nothing in any quantity that was particularly flammable or explosive. Suspicions of arson could not be dispelled, nor could they be proved. No culprit was to be identified. If there was blame to be attached, it wasn't going to be on the shoulders of the night watchman. Far from it. Kirchin had told the coroner's court that he'd been employed by colonial architect James Barnett and that on several occasions he'd told his boss there needed to be more than a solitary night watchman. Parts of the garden palace were so vast and so dark that even 50 men might not see an intruder. In his testimony, John McKnight had agreed He'd said an intruder could simply stand behind a pillar and be invisible from the lantern. The New South Wales government was pilloried by the press and by the public for having placed so much that was so valuable and irreplaceable in a tinderbox of a building that had then been left all but unprotected. Yet, when the political opposition attacked, the Premier said what so many leaders have since said, Now's not the time. It was unseemly to make such criticisms when such a serious loss was so fresh and so painful. But the leader's next ploy was even more breathtakingly cynical. The government said the opposition was to blame because if they were so concerned, they should have forced the government to act. As the Sydney Mail commented, It is a marvellous thing that under such circumstance, the government should boldly poo-poo the charge of neglect the government has in effect told the honourable members that it is no more to blame than they. They failed to warn the government of the risk, and the government therefore cannot be called to account for having failed to see the risk. This is perhaps the most open repudiation of responsibility that has been witnessed for many years. Here we see a set of men appointed to be guardians of the public interest and handsomely paid to take care of it, turning round when the public interest has been injured by their neglect and saying, 
You must not blame us, for you did not keep us to our duty. When this sort of thing is tolerated as a matter of course, what security, what hope is there that the proper care and vigilance will be exercised in the future? On the 6th of October 1882, the city coroner reviewed the evidence. The jury, he said, had to decide if the Garden Palace had burned as the result of spontaneous combustion, as the result of accident, or as the result of arson. The jury had heard there was nothing flammable kept in the building. They had heard there was no one but the night watchman present, and he'd not smoked or used a lighted candle. The police had been present and detected nothing just 15 or 20 minutes before the smoke and the fire were first seen. Yet, when the palace had gone up, credible witnesses had said the fire had begun both in the fountain area and the North Tower simultaneously. But if it was deliberate, what was the motive? There was nothing of monetary value stolen, the mining museum's gems and gold having been recovered. That, the coroner said, was as far as the evidence would take them. It was up to the jury. They retired for nearly an hour and came back just after midday. The jury returned an open verdict. There was no way to say what had caused the Garden Palace fire. But they could say who was to blame for the destruction it wrought, adding the writer, quote, We consider that the authorities are deserving of censure in not providing more efficient supervision over such a valuable property. That it was arson seemed obvious then, as it does now. This theory was hard to kill in 1882. The evening news on the 31st of October ran an editorial headline, The Police Authorities and the Garden Palace Fire. It asked why there hadn't been more effort put into discovering if someone was responsible. Why, the paper wanted to know, had no reward, including a free pardon for any accomplice, been offered while the ruins were still smouldering. The police, the paper said, didn't seem to want to know about the case, even though they believed it had been arson. One hundred and forty years later, in the Domain, there's a circular rose garden and a cherub statue where Queen Victoria once stood in bronze beneath the Garden Palace dome. A little west, on Macquarie Street, all that remains of the Garden Palace complex is the Palace Gate. Held aloft on sandstone pillars, when closed, the upper part of the gate's wrought iron design forms a picture of the great dome that once towered here. But a few minutes' walk south along Macquarie Street brings us to the Mitchell Library. This marvellous building wasn't there when the Garden Palace towered over Sydney. The Mitchell Library was erected from 1906 to 1910, designed by Walter Liberty Vernon, who'd also designed the art gallery in the 1890s. As part of the library's collection, they have many photos of the Garden Palace in all of its glory and all of its desolation. The collection also includes a few physical artefacts. One, molten glass, is what you'd expect. Another, though, would seem to have been fragility itself. The glass time capsule, stuffed with newspapers and parchment. Edward Fallick had whisked it away to his family's private museum in 1882. This was likely located in the Fallick & Sons ironmongery business in Pitt Street. Sometime during the rest of the 1880s or in the first half of the 1890s, Sir Henry Parks had visited. He'd seen the bottle, 
and reportedly remarked that it was still government property, but he seemingly made no effort to insist upon its return. In 1952, 70 years after the Great Fire, Edward Fallock died. His grandson, two years later, presented the capsule to the State Library. It's remained in the collection ever since. A few days before recording this episode, I visited the Mitchell Library, filled out a call slip, and requested the time capsule. In a supervised visit in the Special Collections area, I was able to see it, touch it, and turn it around. It was quite wonderful to have this tactile link to the events you've been hearing about. You can't open it, but there's also no need. Thanks to document preservation, in physical newspapers at first and now in digitization, we can actually read the contents anyway. The parchment's wording was recorded in the newspaper accounts of the laying of the foundation stone, and they're all available free to read on Trove. It's also possible to make out that the issue of Town and Country was dated the 1st of February 1879, and this entire issue can also be downloaded free from Trove to any device. Reading its news reports is to see why this issue was included. It tells readers that applications for exhibition space are pouring in, that steam trains are likely, and that eight electric lights are already on the way from London. The paper also recorded that the International Exhibition Building, not yet known as the Garden Palace, would be built at an estimated cost of £50,000. In the end, as we've heard, it cost a lot more than that, and it's a price we're still paying, particularly in regard to those census records. But the painful lessons of the Garden Palace fire, about protection and preservation, were eventually learned. Even so, ongoing vigilance is required. It's easy to tut-tut at the foolishness of our forebears for storing irreplaceable documents in a tinderbox. Yet, in the past few years, our political leaders have had to be forced to cough up funds to keep our vital archives safe. Deteriorating buildings, decaying documents, stalled digitization projects. They're not as spectacular as a massive fire, but they still have the potential to be destructive and result in more black holes in our history. We should never let that happen. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. The Garden Palace Fire episode pairs quite nicely with the Birdman of Adelaide Jail. As you may have noticed, the key events happened at almost exactly the same time. Further, Senior Constable James McVeigh is all through the notorious Lady Munro episodes. And if you want more fire action, check out the three-part episode The Plague Returns and the special bonus episode Black Thursday about the 1851 bushfires that set fire to one quarter of the colony of Victoria. I'll be back with a new episode very soon. In the meantime, if you'd like to support Forgotten Australia, you can chip in via Apple and via Patreon. Supporting costs about the same as a cup of coffee a month, and it helps me visit sites, pay for digitization, and pay for books and other reference materials. As a thank you, you'll get a show shout-out and access to a dozen and counting exclusive bonus episodes. Links are in your show notes. As always... Thanks for listening and thanks for supporting.